Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for June 16th, 2016, the Brexit Pursued by a Bear edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John, is in New York City, I think, right? Yes, indeed. Hello, David. Emily is trying to see Europe before Brexit destroys it, so she is off on vacation somewhere in the EU and that means that we have a special guest, Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent. Our regular our regular sub is here sitting in her place. Hello, Jamel. Hello. Jamel's in Washington with me. On this week's GabFest, the massacre at Pulse in Orlando, which competing narrative should triumph? There's gun violence, anti-gay hate crime, Islamist, Islamist terrorism, all of the above, and also how disgusting has Donald Trump's to the massacre been? Then, Brexit, what does it mean for you and your bros? We will talk to David Rennie of The Economist about the looming vote to take Great Britain, to take the United Kingdom out of the EU. Then, suppose you want to go protest the Trump convention in Cleveland. Should you? Is that good for him? Is that good for you? Is it good for America that there be protests? And what kind of protests should they be? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, it'll be a casual conversation about two formal men, John and Jamel, who are joining me today, are two of the best dressed men in political journalism. And so we're going to talk about how you dress to cover a, a contentious summary political campaign. <laughs> I can't believe we're actually going to do that. Well, you you came up with no Slate Plus topics, John. So, I know, I know. So, <laughs> it's because it's a busy week. <laughs> yeah, it was busy for me too. That's what I, that was what I came up with on the train at 1030 last night. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. You know what it's going to be? This is going to be a great discussion because of that. I want to announce a bunch of live shows. There are live shows galore coming up for you if you are a Slate podcast fan. So we have a live show, of course, July 13th in Washington, D.C., right before the Republican convention. It's going to be at the Warner Theater. It's going to be great. You go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that. We also have a second live show on June 30th in Aspen. We are going to be doing a, a show at the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. You can get tickets for that at uh, aspenideas.org. Our guest, we're going to have a guest, my favorite Republican in America is going to be guesting at that show at Aspen on June 30th. And uh, Culture Fest has a show coming up this summer at the Mount, Edith Wharton's historic home in Lenox, Massachusetts, on August 4th. You can get tickets for that at slate.com slash live. You can get tickets for our show, June, July 13th, at slate.com slash live, too. Omar Mateen's massacre of 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando is the worst mass shooting in American history. It is the worst act of terrorism in America since 9-11. It's the worst anti-gay hate crime in American history. It's probably the worst anti-Latino crime in American history. The very density of narratives around this tragedy have taken something which is which is just incredibly sad and grim and politicized it in strange ways notably in in horrific ways that donald trump is doing which we'll get to that in a second but jamel is there anything different about how america's responded to this attack than to earlier mass shootings is this this uh multiplicity of narratives changed changed our response i don't think it's so much changed our response as much as this multiplicity of narratives has created sort of commiserate responses for each one right and so you have um lgbt uh activists 
tying this event to previous instances of anti-gay violence and sort of using this as a, a sort of a rallying cry for um, stronger efforts to protect um, LGBT Americans from violence and also to publicize the extent to which um, this community is still kind of the, the target of most hate crimes in the United States. You have national security types uh using this uh, rightfully to talk about the lone wolf problem, to talk about the influence of ISIS and, and specifically the influence sort of ISIS's propaganda can have on isolated um, sort of disconnected young men in society. Uh, and then you also have, of course, a major conversation about gun violence uh, that this has re, re reinvigorated um, among those who want gun control. And uh, just, I mean, just, Yesterday or this this morning, um, Senator Chris Murphy wrapped up a filibuster kind of devoted to this uh, to this topic. So because there are so many overlapping concerns here, essentially everyone's using it to talk about the concern that they're they're most interested in. That I think uh, is unique, um, but that's really just a function again of the fact that in this single event we have so many different uh, threads. John, what do you think that? multiplicity means for the politics of this does it mean that there will be no single unified response to yeah. it and hence no, no there'll be no likely action that comes out of it on any particular front i think that's right i think it it will lead to inflammation and even greater frustration than we've had on all these topics before because anybody wants to not address the issue on the terms another person sets for the debate can choose another contributing factor to this. So if you don't want to talk about this as a terrorist event, you can talk about it as a gun event. If you don't want to talk about it as an LGBT event, you can talk about it as a terrorist event. And you can, or, you know, you can even throw mental health in there too. Um, so I think that, that because we've also, and we've seen there's an inclination to do that because we've seen on all of these issues um there's been a kind of stalemate in the conversation already. Um, social media takes over the conversation instantaneously. Everybody goes to their corners. And, you know, when Jamel and I talked about this on Sunday morning, uh, you know, at 11 o'clock, some people were waking up to this news in the morning. And then kind of the usual suspects were already on about their third round of charge and countercharge in the public conversation that takes place on social media, saying all of the predictable motive questioning and judging about each side, which kind of just immediately the, the debate gets taken over. So it doesn't feel like we're, um, it doesn't feel like there's going to be much uh, light that comes out of this. You know, I will say that there is one unifying thing in all of this, and that is that everyone thinks Donald Trump's response was abysmal. Um, that's a great point. Other than Trump's dedicated fans, and that's because we should always just sort of set those people aside. But the rest of the political world responded to Trump's Orlando uh, speech on Orlando on Monday with kind of with almost universal condemnation, which is very unusual. So w remind GabFest listeners what Trump said, basically. Of course. Basically, Trump said that um, Orlando and San Bernardino and this lone wolf problem is basically a result of Americans letting immigrants and refugees and specifically Muslim immigrants and refugees. And that the only way we can solve this problem is by a banning Muslims from the country um, or from entering the country until quote, we find out what's going on and also sort of turning up the heat on Muslims within the United States and essentially, um, putting forth an ultimatum that either they tell us who the violent people are or they, they suffer, quote, consequences. John, why was it, do you think, that there was this nearly universal condemnation? Well, there's certainly universal condemnation of Trump from anyone uh, on the left at all. And there was pretty significant condemnation of him, even from people on the right. There are other people who were silent about it, of course. But why do you think these remarks irritated so many people? Well, the you know the condemnation on the left is predictable, but right. the, but the right, um, I was struck by a couple of things. Well, I mean, one reason he wasn't supported is that he, over the last two months or so, there's been some question about whether he was still as fully behind the temporary Muslim ban as um, 
as he always was, or as he was during the primaries. So when I asked him about that, he said, yes, absolutely. Still, we got to do something. It's fully on. But his aides were saying, Paul Manafort, you know, famously a couple of times said, um, well, you know, he's going to kind of, that's the just starting it's a starting place and he'll m- kind of make it his own in negotiation. And it's suggested there was a lot of wiggle room in it. And those who were reluctant to support him or who were supporting him and were looking for a comfortable place to, or, or a way to make that support seem more comfortable said, well, you know, he's, he's moderating on it, but he's, so he clearly wasn't moderating on it, but there was some confusion. Now there's absolutely no confusion. And that's a position that's already been um, either denounced or not supported by anybody, basically anybody in the Republican ranks, including those people who are supporting him. Everybody from uh, Paul Ryan to to Mitch McConnell uh, say they're supporting him, but have always said this is something that they fundamentally, fundamentally don't agree with. So that, that was his first gambit. And then... Um, and, and, you know, why does that matter? Because he's essentially, it's something they've already spoken out about, so they can't just stay mute, or their previous comments um, stand in. Then I think the intimations about President Obama, even as much as Republicans don't like Barack Obama, they're not willing to go anywhere close to that. And when Barack Obama denounced Trump in his statement at the Treasury Department a couple of days ago, you could expect a situation in which Republicans would rally in denunciation of the president. That's something they all know how to do. It has nothing necessarily to do with Donald Trump. It could be done on its own terms. And it's they're looking for a place to rally that isn't uh, stained with Trump. But even then, they didn't call out the president for denouncing Donald Trump because there was what he was denouncing Trump for is the same thing that they have rebuked him for. Um, so what I where I am at this point is if you stack up all of the things that Republican leaders have said on the record, and this is not what they're saying behind the scenes, which is even more dire, what they've said on the record about the nominee of the party and comments he's made about Muslims, immigration, the judge over uh, overseeing the Trump University case, all of which they've put in pretty grand terms. Marco Rubio said that he still doesn't think that Donald Trump is uh, is fit to, to handle the nuclear codes. You stack all of those up on one side of the balance. Uh, what ev- what event, what kind of behavior, what thing could a candidate do, could Donald Trump do to even those scales? I mean, when you stack up what, what he's been uh, rebuked for by leaders of the party, not just some weird backbencher or some Northeastern Republican who's in a tough race. These are the leaders of the party who've said that the things he's said aren't just like slightly objectionable. They go to the core foundation of the party and its founding and its principles. I mean, even let's just take one thing. Marco Rubio is saying he doesn't think he uh, can be handled with the nuclear codes. What is it that would then change that view? Did Marco Rubio said that recently. Yeah, he said that like last but he week. Just, didn't he just endorse him? Not he. he well, this is this is the conundrum. God, it's so confusing. Um, but uh, but I guess my just quick quick. I I just don't know what alternate behavior would suddenly make him. Just by the lights of of Rubio's own argument, or Ryan's own argument, or 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 uh, McConnell's own argument. And with regard to the numbers, I mean, CBS did a quick poll, um, sort of. Who can trust CBS? Why would you <laughs> I mean, trust who can you, who can trust CBS? I mean, you know, two CBS representatives on, on the air here, so uh, take take my endorsement of this poll with a grain of salt. But I think I think John's right here. When you have leaders of uh, the nominees party, and that's it's always worth sort of emphasizing how extraordinary that is. I don't think it's really ever happened. Um, in modern elections for party leaders to condemn their nominee. And really, I mean, Rubio saying, I don't trust him with the nuclear codes, it's like borderline apocalyptic, right? Like the, <laughs> the, the, the implication of that is that if Trump were to somehow get the nuclear codes, we'd all be screwed. So yeah, I mean, Trump is, is in a dire place right now. And I think, I think that was predictable from the very beginning. I think that if you look at how Trump's numbers with the broader public this entire time, it was very clear that as soon as he left the context of a Republican primary, things would just fall apart. And that's that's what's happening, which I think leaves Republican leaders with a really vexing question. If, if come July, Trump is not just unpopular, the most unpopular nominee ever, but one of the most unpopular figures in, in politics um, who threatens to sink the entire party in the fall, what do you do? 
And I, I think another thing that contributes to the dynamic of what's going on right now is I'm hearing more both from our colleagues who cover Republicans uh, and, and politics, but also from Republicans themselves, that there's a lot of post-Trump positioning going on. So the idea being that that the conclusion's already been determined, and, and Mitch McConnell was already advising Senate colleagues how to do this before Trump was the nominee, but the conclusion's already being drawn by some people that he's going to lose and that you want to start getting in line uh, for where the party goes afterwards and that you want to be able to maintain your political viability in the post-Trump era. Once people start thinking like that, it's, I, I think that's, I don't think we're fully there into embracing that. I think there's a, I, I, I not quite what to make sure what to make of that conversation, but if it continues on, that's a real, that's a, like a huge break. I mean, then that's, then I guess my point is then it's broken. Then there's no, then there's no, then he's not turning. Then, People can't say, oh, he's turned a corner and he's our nominee now. They have to kind of maintain that position for the rest of the election. Um, just to turning, turning back to the attacks for a minute, I, as a citizen, continue to be surprised at how little terrorism there is in the United States. Um, and there, you know, you have these terrible acts and you have, because we have so many guns available, there's a lot of, there are a lot of acts of shooting, multiple murder that occur. But, but in the sort of post 9-11 period, I think there was this fear that we're, America is going to be beset with attacks by, uh, by Islamist lunatics and, you know, people, people who are going to bring us down. And there really hasn't been that much. But I confess that these, like this sort of the lone wolfiness of the last couple of attacks does worry me because this is, these are not attacks that, these are very hard attacks to stop. Because they actually aren't. These are not things where there's a community of people who are harboring, who are harboring a gang that's plotting something together. This is sort of disaffected individuals who get access to guns because it's very easy to get access to guns in this country, and their rage builds up. And it's mostly it's not that they're there's a community that's harboring. It's that they're isolated and and uh, feel a sense of anomie and alienation from the United States, and that that is a much harder thing to defeat than sort of organized plots of gangs and cells of people coming into the, into the country. Right. I, I tend to think that there's almost no way to defeat it, that you can do as much harm mitigation as you can, which basically just amounts to making it harder to get um, assault weapons in people's hands, which itself is a whole other conundrum. Um, but I don't, I don't know what else you can really do. I think, you know, the, the question of why haven't there been more sort of homegrown terrorist attacks since 9-11 is answered by the fact that the United States, for all of its problems, does actually a very good job of integrating its right. its Muslim citizens in the United States and generally integrating um, a non-native uh, people into the country. And so the best way going forward in terms of Islamicists lone wolves is to continue doing that to to respond more like obama or even george w bush in terms of domestic rhetoric um than donald trump i will say that i do think that we'll likely see more of these and not just from um you know people inspired by isis the pattern um of the orlando shooter of being disaffected alienated from society um finding propaganda that essentially could cast his violent ideation as an act of good or something that would attain glory and then acting on it basically is identical to dylan roofs right. in charleston right. it's the same exact right. thing and you know, there are, and I think this is not just an American phenomenon, but a, a global one. Modern society is producing, it seems, a surfeit of disaffected young men. And there are plenty of ideologies, whether it's ISIS-style Islamicism, whether it's white supremacy, um, you know, you pick your poison, uh, that can recast the violent urges and violent ideas of these disaffected young men as something praiseworthy. And in the United, in, in a free society, there's only really so much you can do to prevent that stuff. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories 
seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Quick editor's note before we continue on the GABFEST. The segment you're about to hear with Washington Bureau Chief of The Economist David Rennie was recorded just a few hours before we learned the news that Joe Cox, a member of parliament in the UK's Labour Party, was killed by one of her constituents in a crime that appears to be motivated by the Brexit debate. This tragedy will undoubtedly affect the UK's debate, but we think this excellent discussion with David Rennie of The Economist magazine still offers a great dive into the issue. In just a moment, you'll hear David Plotz and John Dickerson interviewing David Rennie. Jamel Bowie had to step out for this interview, but he'll be back for the rest of the show. The United Kingdom votes on June 23rd on a referendum about whether to leave the European Union. The Brexit vote is the result. Well, we'll hear sort of what it's the result of in a minute, but I think it's the result of a campaign promise that Prime Minister David Cameron made to help him win re-election back in 2015, largely as a way of placating the far-right anti-immigration elements in Britain. Recent polling suggests that the Leave referendum has a pretty good chance of passing. My own amateur American reading based on U.S. polls is that A, it's gaining support, and B, its supporters are more enthusiastic than the people who want to remain. Therefore, it will probably win. But don't trust me. I don't know anything about it. We've got a real live British journalist who knows a lot about it to join us, David Rennie, who is the Washington Bureau Chief of The Economist and the author of its Lexington column. Welcome to the GabFest, David. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Um, so how and why did this vote come about and what would it do if it goes through? So this is not the considered will of the political classes of the UK. The three main party leaders all want to stay. Uh, probably privately don't want this vote to be happening, are horrified about what is going on. Uh, the current prime minister, all living former British prime ministers, they all want to stay. They're horrified by what's going on. The governor of the Bank of England, uh, the head of the Confederation of British Industry, the entire British establishment thinks this is an appallingly bad idea. What's going on mainly is that the leader of the Conservative Party, the prime minister, David Cameron, is very weak within his own party. It's a split party. And before the last election, his members of parliament were getting an earful about immigration and Europe and bloody foreigners and all of that on the doorstep. And they were panicking that they might lose votes uh, to the anti-immigration UK Independence Party. And so in a moment of panic before the election, they said, we have to have something to see off the far right. And the promise of a referendum looked like a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. And one of the things we know about David Cameron, who is in many ways a smart guy, is that he's also a gambler. If you push him into a corner and he feels like everything's going wrong, he will, you know, he'll roll the dice. That's what he always does. And so he rolled the dice. And now, unfortunately, it's going wrong for him. Why has the Leave side been gaining so much, so much support? So essentially, the campaign has been dominated by two big things, an argument about the economy, are you better off or worse off, and an argument about immigration. And really, the Remain camp, the stay in the UK, uh, the stay in the Europe camp, has won the argument about the economy that, you know, you could look at the polling, you could look at the arguments that most people are prepared to accept that probably it's risky for the economy, uh, or possibly disastrous to leave. But immigration has trumped everything. And it's become less and less kind of intellectual, more and more visceral. We saw a poster unveiled, uh, you know, just uh, the, the latest poster from the Leave campaign is essentially a photograph of a field full of Afghans and Syrians and Pakistanis somewhere in Eastern Europe. And it just says breaking point. And it is pretty much a racist poster. And that seems to be resonating. And I think that's been the big shift. Two gigantic things have changed about the Europe debate in the last 10 years in the UK. Uh, one is that the elites used to think, well, we don't much like Europe, uh, but at least we get access to that gigantic European market. And the other thing was the public 
the, the thing that's changed is that Europe now looks like an economic basket case to a lot of people. So the elites now think, well, do we really want to be, they use this phrase, shackled to a corpse. The other big thing is that now Europe means immigration. It means loss of control of borders. That's the big change in public opinion. In, in the United, United States politics, there is this view among some people, even within the Republican Party, that um, that the Republican Party has, because of a variety of decisions they've made, created the conditions that created Donald Trump, that in order to get out of similar fixes like the one you described, um, they have made, they've made commitments or allowed things to continue, hoping to never actually pay a cost. Is that a totally facile connection between these two circumstances, or do you see parallels between uh, what's happening with Brexit and what you see covering politics here in America? The parallels are actually really strong, I think. Uh, I mean, it's even down to the demographics. If you go into the polling and you look at the crosstabs of Trump supporters and Brexit supporters, uh, they they don't live in big cities. Uh, They tend to be older, less educated, white males. That's the Brexit core vote. Uh, That's the Trump core vote. And who are those people? You can make the case they are people who feel like the losers from globalization. They feel like the losers from immigration. They feel like there's a lot of cultural change that makes them uneasy. And one of the things that I think you're absolutely right to ask about that kind of devil's bargain that that political leaders have, have hatched is one of the reasons that David Cameron is making such a weak uh, hand of trying to stay in the European Union is that for years to placate exactly those forces, he has basically framed immigration into the UK as a negative, something to reduce. He had this ridiculous campaign promise that he would reduce net immigration into the UK to tens of thousands of people down from hundreds of thousands of people. Completely impossible promise to deliver on. He doesn't have the legal powers to do that. But worse, it means that instead of being able to say what we at The Economist magazine would say is the truth, which is free movement around Europe is one of the best things about Europe. It makes Europe into a kind of United States where, you know, when one state is doing better, people move there to get jobs and they take their families there. That's a great thing. We think that's fantastic that London is full of kind of French people and Spanish people and factories can hire good Polish workers. We think that's a great thing. But because David Cameron has been saying to the British people, yes, you're right to think immigration is bad, he now can't defend one of the single biggest advantages of the European Union. So I think there's like a really close parallel. What should the white, displaced uh, Brits feel? Who should, who should their anger be directed at? If it's not directed at immigrants and if it's not directed at Europe, what, where, where does the blame for them or where do the solutions lie if not, if not in what they found? Well, no, look, not everyone would take this view, but, you know, I work for The Economist. We're pretty free trade uh, kind of paper. Look, I have worked in Brussels. I've worked in London. I've worked in China. I've worked in America twice now. I think I'm very struck by the fact that in every rich Western democracy that I've covered elections and politics in, people make very, very similar complaints about, you know, we've lost the American dream. We've lost the British dream. We've lost the French dream. You know, our kids aren't doing as well as we did. You know, I remember my grandfather got a job in a factory after World War II and he could buy a new car and all those things. The one thing that links all of those countries, and remember those countries have very, very different policies when it comes to government spending, to labor unions, all of those things. The one thing they have in common is they remember this golden era when you could get a job for life in a factory out of you know high school. And what was true of all those countries was they didn't face competition from China, from India, from the communist world, from the Soviet bloc. And then after 1989, basically that competition came roaring back. And I think that, to me, is the single biggest reason. And so politicians basically can't actually make the past come back, but their voters want the past back. I guess maybe then I'm asking the same question, which which you could ask of of uh, Republicans in Washington. What are the what are the policies if you're David Cameron and you you instead of blaming immigration, instead of pulling out of Europe, what are the things that you could be offering to these people that would that would mollify them and make them not so angry and not so not so willing to throw away 50 years of a tremendously successful partnership. So look, you have to be sensitive to people who live in a town where there was one big employer and that employer left. And people like me who have a nice, comfortable office job, you know, we have to be careful about sneering at them because, you know, no one's just, you know, the Chinese haven't started a new version of The Economist magazine that's going to take my job away. But having said that, you know, you can't just kind of pull up the drawbridge and make the world go away. We would say you have to learn to compete. You have to educate people. You have to give them, you know, you have to train them for new jobs that do exist because the old jobs have gone away. And that's why this Brexit uh, argument is so heartbreaking. Why I'm really 
you know, struggling to maintain objectivity as a journalist here, because I think that leaving the European Union will make us much, much less competitive. And those same angry white voters who are, you know, rallying to the polls, I think they'll be the biggest losers. Because if you're a big multinational company, if you're GM, if you're Nissan, if you're Toyota, and you're working out where you're going to build your next big factory in Europe, why would you put it in a Britain that's just left the European Union with all the legal and economic uncertainty. So these people are going to lose out much more than I am. I'm going to be fine because I'm kind of, you know, I work for the House Journal of Globalization. Is it different for the future of the EU if Britain leaves than if, say, France leaves? Britain's already an island. It already has slightly different set of rules for how it's involved in Europe than, than some of the continental countries. Okay, if you're the European Union itself, it's probably a, it would be a much bigger deal if France left. I mean, if France left, then it's kind of game over. If you're America, if you're listening to this podcast in America, I would say it's a really big deal that Britain leaves because Britain is, you know, still by far the most sympathetic large country uh, in Europe. And a Britain that's leaving the European Union is a Britain that is sending the clearest possible signal that it doesn't want to be a big kind of global player. It doesn't want to share. It wants to pull up the drawbridge. Uh, it's turning in on itself. It's turning into an island nation. It's also going to be a pain because, you know, you saw Barack Obama on his most recent trip to the UK uh, asked about whether he wanted Britain to leave. And he said, look, we're trying to do some new free trade deals. It's not easy doing new free trade deals at the moment. We have one on the books uh, potentially to do with the European Union. That's already hard enough. If you think that we're going to have the kind of the time and the energy in America to do a, a free trade deal on its own with the UK, I mean, the phrase that Barack Obama uses, Britain's going to be at the back of the queue. You know, we don't have time to deal one-on-one -on -one with countries like, like, like the UK. That created a huge backlash in the UK. How dare Barack Obama come and give us lectures? Who's he to talk? But he's right. He's right. You know, this is a big deal for, you know, it's going to be a total pain for the US because you're going to find the UK a less useful, less influential, and much more navel-gazing partner. David, what other, you've sketched out some of the, or two of the big consequences of this. What else if Britain does leave, what else happens? What are the other consequences? How does Cameron go forward? I mean, is it uh, sort of sketch out life for us? So one big consequence for the US, I should say, in the short term, I think there'll be an economic hit. And so I think if you're Barack Obama in the White House or if you're in the Treasury right now, they are terrified that, you know, the pound will crash. There'll be a spike in interest rates in the UK. The UK has been one of the stronger European economies recently. That's just not good for a, a world that is still very, very fragile. So in the short term, everyone is very nervous. You know, international markets are already very, very jumpy about this vote. And you'll see them crash next week, I think. In political terms, if Britain votes to leave... I don't see how David Cameron stays on as prime minister. Uh, I assume the government falls. And one of the really extraordinary dynamics has been that because he's so weak within his own party, he had to promise his own government a free, uh, not a free vote, but a free sort of voice in this campaign. So you have, you turn on the British radio at the moment, and you have British government ministers from David Cameron's cabinet, from his own party, on the radio every day saying, David Cameron is lying to the British people. It's a disgrace. These are his own colleagues. And essentially what you can see is that there is a new government in waiting uh, of, of a much more right-wing uh, Conservative Party waiting to take over. We don't know if there'll be a snap election. We don't know uh, whether Parliament will f you know, have a vote of no confidence. We just don't know. This is completely uncharted waters. You, you are acting as though this is already Brexit is Brexiting. The, that this no, that's, I don't want to give that impression. I think you know it's close. I think it's very close. I think probably Brexit is ahead, but we don't know about the turnout effects because that's that's a real mystery because we don't have anything to compare this against. That's one of the challenges of polling this is that we don't have another Brexit referendum as a baseline. Why has the Remain campaign been so crummy about painting the benefits of this for for Britain? Partly because the British don't like Europe very much. Uh, it's never been, you know, I remember going to do a Spanish referendum on Europe a few years ago and talking to a guy in the streets of Barcelona and saying, you're going to vote yes today. And he was like, you know, hombre, como no, you know, how, how could I not? You know, it was just self-evident. If you're a reasonable non-kind of fascist Spaniard, then of course you're pro-European. It just is part of the kind of the air you breathe. Britain's not like that. Perfectly reasonable, non-racist people think Europe is a, you know, a mess and undemocratic and they don't like it very much. So it's hard to make the positive case. It's also, this came up last year when we had the vote on Scottish independence. Now, I'm English and Scottish, so I was on the radio and podcast in Washington talking the same thing. I remember a Scottish nationalist saying to me, you know, you keep making all these negative arguments about the effects of Scotland leaving. It's like, well, you know, if my kids were standing on the side of I-66 
preparing to close their eyes and run across the interstate, I would at that moment have mostly negative arguments to make to them because I think it's a fantastically dangerous thing we're about to do. Why is it that Britain doesn't feel part of Europe? I mean, is it that there are you know ludicrous regulations that you have to you have to abide by and you know bureaucrats in Brussels who are telling you stupid things that you don't want to do or is it something you know you're just an island it's a, it's a separate it's history separate entity. it's the island it's look i mean the stupid regulations apply to every other country and they don't feel the same way it's partly it's i'm afraid a lot of it's things like world war 2 i mean you look at the british tabloid newspapers it's world war 2 every morning you know on their front pages uh, it's always about you know the germans don't tell us what to do and pictures of spitfire fighter planes over white cliffs. I mean, literally, that's not a joke. It's pictures of spitfires. I mean, that's what it is. So it's, you know, there's part of that. It's, you know, it makes a difference, actually, to be serious about World War II. It makes a difference that Britain is one of the only countries in the European Union for whom the Second World War is a positive, proud memory. For everyone else, either they were on the wrong side or they collaborated, or they were occupied, or they feel bad about it. For the British, it's positive. And that does make a difference. Because if you ask a Frenchman or a German why they're so pro-European, it's like, never again. Because we never want to do that again. Well, never again doesn't quite work the same way for us, because we're proud of World War II. So that is, you know, that's a funny thing. We joined in the 1970s, not because we were in love with the European flag, but because our economy was in a tank and Basically, Europe looked more dynamic than we did. You know, you look at British cars from the 1970s if you want, you know, to weep or laugh because they were, you know, it was, it was a total basket case. The Germans were making better cars than us. The French made better food than us. It was like, oh, God, we better join these people. The big thing that's changed now is that because Europe on the continent looks like an economic basket case, you know, we joined this club reluctantly because we thought it would do us, you know, economic favor. Now they look like a basket case and we're, in the, we're still in the club. So that, that's the dynamic. David, in uh, in our presidential election, there's a big side conversation about uh, how new media and the characters involved, obviously Donald Trump, have totally changed the way a public conversation about serious issues gets uh, goes on, takes place. And there's a you know not many people think it's going the conversation's going very well in the public square. Mm-hmm. How, given what you said about Spitfires on the front of tabloids, um. How well has the public conversation been held? Has it been just full of, you know, half-truths and scare tactics? Has there been an island other than The Economist of reasoned argument? You know, are there – do we see new media um, changing uh, the conversation the way, like, old-fashioned gatekeepers who used to make reasoned arguments might not be listened to? Tell me about the nature of the debate. So I think the technical term is uh, abject. Uh, it's been, it's just been, it's just been like. I mean, I'm covering Donald Trump now in Washington. It, it's, it's the same. You know, facts don't matter. You make up your own statistics. You know, we have uh, one of the leading campaigners, who, the guy who could be prime minister next, Boris Johnson, former mayor of London, uh, driving around the UK in a big red double decker bus, and it has a gigantic slogan on the side that says, "We send Brussels 350 million pounds a week. Let's spend that on the national health service." Um, we don't send Brussels. 350 million pounds a week. Anything like. He's, it's a totally made up number. And every time people say, Mr. Johnson, that's a totally made up number, he smiles, waves, gets back in the bus and, you know, drives on because it's a popular slogan. Um, it, what's interesting on the social media side is it's actually been weirdly old school. Uh, and one of the dynamics actually is in the UK, unlike with you and on American Network TV, we still have uh, the BBC. We have this, you know, state broadcaster and they have incredibly strict balance rules that any given program has to have equal time. One of the unhappy effects of that is you'll literally have a debate about, you know, is this a good idea for the economy? And we have three minutes and 30 seconds for the governor of the Bank of England. And then we have three minutes and 30 seconds for one of the only economists they could find in any university anywhere in the UK who thinks the opposite and they get equal time. And that's been another kind of dynamic where voters just go, well, they're all arguing and they tune it out and ah, you know. Last uh, question on this, David. If Brexit wins and there's an economic calamity that, that ensues right afterwards, interest rates spike, mm. uh, the pound collapses, why can't there be a rejoin? Why can't there be a, 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 a referendum tomorrow that says, you know what, that was a mistake. Let's, let's, let's uh, reverse that. 
we don't really know what happens. And, and, and if we vote to leave next Thursday, the UK will not leave the, UK, uh, the EU immediately. It'll take years because we've, we've never done this before. No one's ever done it before. I mean, Greenland left, but that was kind of a bit different because there's, you know, two people and a polar bear. But it's, it's – um, we don't know. And it's possible – I mean, the next proud, thing that could Proud island is, nation. Another proud <laughs> island nation <laughs> proud with island a nation. good World War II history, I might add. Here's the problem. We A, we don't know. B, the government may fall, so that'll distract people. C, Scotland – may decide that they actually would like to stay in the European Union, so prepare for another Scottish referendum. I mean, the UK could break up. We just don't know where this goes next. And and it's also, you know, there will, I think, be a run on the pan next week and stuff. But actually, it's the long-term effects that really worry me. What really worries me, you know, my kids are 11 and 13. They have American passports and they have British passports, which at the moment are European Union passports. I would like for them to grow up in the European Union with a good prospect of a good job and a, and a, a multinational, multicultural, open, outward-facing Britain. I don't want them to grow up in some pinched, English, you know, diminished uh, poorer, grayer, drabber, angrier little kind of little England. And that's the future that I really worry they could face after next Thursday. David Rennie of The Economist. David, thanks for joining us. Come back anytime. Thank you. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On July 18th, the Republican Party convenes in Cleveland, Ohio for its quadrennial convention where it will presumably nominate Donald Trump as its presidential candidate. The Secret Service and local authorities have got the area right around the Q arena pretty well locked down. I don't think there's going to be much disruption or ability for for people who want to cause trouble to get actually into the arena. And the perimeter right around the arena and and, and relatively expansive area around it is, is fairly well patrolled and and uh, access is going to be difficult. But this is a public country and there's a right to assemble and the right to free speech. And so there are places in Cleveland where assembly and protest are going to be allowed. The restrictions that Cleveland has put on assembly and protest are fairly grand. They, they're only, you can only have your, your organized march before two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, there are only very limited number of areas where you can go. There's very little access, uh, and people, I think, are going to be kept mostly separated from where delegates and the candidate will be. So I wanted to pose the question, which is, let us assume, because you're a GabFest listener, it's not a terrible assumption, that you maybe aren't happy about the Donald Trump nomination. You don't think he should be president. You think he represents a dangerous trend in American life, and you want to protest. You think that the country needs to hear your objections to Donald Trump and and what better place to do it than at this convention where the whole world and all the press will be gathered. Should you protest? Should people go and engage in their their American, their fundamental American right to free speech and to to object to the loathsome things that Donald Trump represents to them? Or do they risk doing more harm than good? So, John, what is the pro case that if you are if you're someone who opposes Donald Trump and I actually think it's different for reasons we can discuss I don't think this is a, the same question applies to Republicans who might want to protest a Hillary Clinton convention I think it is that there's something about the Trump campaign which makes protesting his campaign a different uh, ball of wax than protesting at a Democratic convention but you can object to that but let's say you are you're you're a, a Trump opponent what is the pro case for going to Cleveland and and trying to take part in a protest well, by bringing him, by highlighting the things you find objectionable so that the pomp of the of the ceremony, which normalizes any candidate, that's the whole point of conventions, doesn't overtake the things you find objectionable. I mean, this will be true with those protesting Hillary Clinton on something, say, like Benghazi, where people say, you know, never forget. Don't forget that this person who's being normalized by this nomination uh, has this in their background. It would be, that seems to me to be the pro case. What is the, uh, what's the con case, Jamel? 
Or what's the pro case? What's the pro case for protest? I, I think John's right on the pro case. I think the con case in the case of Donald Trump is just much more tactical than anything. And that is, I think, as we've seen with previous Trump protests, Trump's fear-mongering seems to inspire people to act violently. I've seen it in person. It's very disconcerting to watch, but Trump seems to unleash something in people for them to kind of act out whatever frustration they have um, using, uh, you know, pushing or fist or or whatnot. And so anti-Trump protests, I think, (laughs) there's a non-trivial possibility that like violence will actually erupt out of them. Um, not necessarily from the protesters or even from the Trump supporters, but just the, the combination of the two uh, might provoke something. Uh, but who are the Trump supporters in Cleveland going to be? Aren't they delegates who are – those delegates are – they're wearing ties and funny hats. That they're doesn't not, worry. Not, oh, I don't – I think that's not right. I think the delegates are likely to be many of them, right. people who are bound by the primary process. I think the the Trump supporters – I mean – if we see this group as it's been um, throughout um, conservative politics, often it's people who are outside of the system. Um, and so you, there will be people physically outside the arena who are diehard Trump supporters who are there perhaps with the intent of of trying to make sure nobody disrupts this. That's where it could escalate and get uh, really crazy because, you know, look at the, was it in San Diego? The people who beat up the Trump supporters at that rally, um, acting as thuggishly as we've seen, um, that if I were a Trump supporter, uh, that would get me to want to be outside the, um, outside the convention to make sure that none of my fellow travelers were being, you know, cold cocked by people who didn't like Donald Trump. Well, Trump will not be physically present outside the arena. He's not going to give speeches on the street. His speeches are going to be contained inside the arena or he might do i guess a big one in a stadium that's a step we can talk about that separately does the mere fact that trump is the nominee heighten and cause violence even if he is not there directly instigating yeah so so even if he's not speaking out on the streets of cleveland people are just so worked up because they're thinking about trump that they will that violence will happen or could happen um so you guys don't think that the pro-trump crowds will behave themselves. I think that pro-Trump crowds will behave themselves in I, Cleveland. Well, I, not if no, not if they're watching people get pushed and shoved who are Trump supporters uh, by the protesters. If you were a pro-Trump supporter out in California when his p- people attending his rally were getting punched in the street, uh, I don't think you would sit there and be just mute. And even if there aren't, I mean, and again, San Diego is really the only time you saw anti-Trump protesters really being um, aggressive about this, but there have been plenty of cases where just sort of non-physical but still very boisterous protesting has like kind of almost pr- uh, collapsed into fistfights between the two supporters. Again, there's something about Trump that just sort of like summons people's worst urges. Um, and so I think that's that's just the con case that like you don't know what could happen. Things get out of control. Um, and 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 do you guys both presume that if there is violence and disorder, that feeds the furnace of the Trump campaign generally, even no matter who it comes from and who it's directed at? I have no idea. Um, I think I, either the the pro case for that is like very intuitive that a candidate who sells fear and and or and promises order um, would benefit from disorder, but. There's the possibility that voters see Trump as the cause of the disorder, right? Not the protesters themselves, simply Trump being Trump is provoking all of this. And so then it would just backfire. I really, I really don't know. Three offerings. One is just historically during the Goldwater campaign of 1964, the White House and civil rights leaders said uh, no more protests at Goldwater uh, events because they started to call them Goldwater rallies because the the violence and the upset they worried was actually helping Goldwater, creating sympathy for him. With George Wallace, the same thing was true. The violence at his rallies was something that he used to benefit from. And almost, they used to say, you know, if we didn't have these protesters, we'd have to invent them. But then there was a tipping point when it got into the general election because the violence became so consuming of his rallies that it just became one of the contributing factors to his decline at the end. I mean, there were a lot of contributing factors, but there's a point where it can flip from creating sympathy for a candidate to kind of just becoming the whole 
the whole message you get from from their campaign. To your point, David, does this create a energy for the Trump movement? I think it might if there weren't uh, what they call charismatic dissenters in the political science literature, which is to say people in his own coalition, which would have included those Republican leaders at one point, who have called him out for creating the conditions of these uh, rallies. I mean, they haven't called him out directly, but by uh, criticizing his uh, kind of muscular response to things from the Muslim ban to other things, they have um, they've censured him from within his own party. And so if they see violence, um, while they would denounce the violence, I don't think they really rally to Trump because of these other things that they find so fearful. And we didn't really talk about this as much, but one of the big things that Republican leaders fear is his total unpredictability. And that even if you were to embrace him for a moment uh, on one issue or another, that locks you in for tomorrow's unpredictability, which you're then going to have to be worried about because it's going to put you in a political fix. Do you guys think that that within the within the arena itself, are there going to be enough Trump loyalists in there that he can generate the kind of frenzy that he's able to generate at crowds which are which are general public crowds? I mean, these are this is the Republican establishment that's showing up, and I mean, they're they're clearly are Trump supporters among them, but but it isn't the same group that shows up at his rallies, and will he be able to? foster that energy in the arena? I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump tries to bring outside supporters in for exactly that reason. Um, I would question whether or not much of the Republican establishment will be there. I mean, we've already gotten some, there's already some word, right, that Republican office holders are just going to sit this one out. Um, so it might be the case where there it is nothing but Trump loyalists because Trump has to bring a bunch of people in. I think sort of the big question um, around this convention is, you know, if Trump's poll numbers continue to do a downward spiral and there's a new Reuters poll out today um, that shows Trump at like 32% uh, against Clinton, which is just a really bad number, then Republican leaders will have to decide if they're going to try to dump him at the convention, which is possible. I mean, the rules, convention rules are basically written um, as the convention approaches. So there's nothing to stop the rules committee. Um, if there's a majority of anti-Trump delegates on it from um, rewriting the rules to allow for that to happen. I think that's an interesting question of who physically, I mean, the state delegations have credentials. A lot of those people are ambivalent Trump supporters. The fuel and the sense of betrayal that um, fuels the Trump supporters I think will drive them to Cleveland in droves. But the really interesting question is, do they get in the hall? Like literally the process of getting an, uh, a badge to get in the hall and uh, because so those badges have already sort of been allotted to people based on their party associations. So you, I could imagine a situation in which you have far more Trump supporters outside, you know, uh, Trump supporters by which I mean the true diehards outside than uh, inside, especially if he continues to have these fights with the RNC that have been um, picking up again, because the RNC does um, have some control over over that stuff. Uh, so, gosh, that could be uh, really interesting. One quick point on Jamel's point about that Reuters poll in 32 is that um, we saw a rallying around Trump after he became the presumptive nominee. And a lot of people, including me, saw kind of Republicans rallying to the Republican, just like when it's election time, everybody puts on their jersey. And and we've seen this, you know, that basically the country, people just sort off to Republicans and that's it, which was the, an argument for why Trump would never fall below the Goldwater mark. Because in 64, when Goldwater gets 38% of the vote, it, the voters sloshed around a lot more. They were less kind of fixed uh, for the team that they wore the jersey for. If he's at 32, that suggests that's wrong and that there are people who normally would wear the Republican jersey and who are just not uniting for the sake of party. They're actually breaking off if that were to sustain. Cause that, and that would be a difference in the way kind of politics has been done on the last few presidential elections. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you finish your push-up, Jamel, and you're having a 
beer. All the latest beer ads I've seen have people doing workouts and having a beer. So maybe it's really weird. I've never, I've never done that. I've nor have I. I've never. I think I drink plenty of alcohol, but never after a workout. Right, I generally drink water after a workout. Um, well, let's say you're going to have a beer or cocktail after your workout. Okay. What would you be chattering about? I would be chattering about this new O.J. Simpson documentary on ESPN. Um, it's part of the 30 for 30 series. It's called O.J. Simpson Made in America. Uh, it's six parts, each part about an hour and a half. So it's like a definite time commitment. Uh, but it's just remarkable. Um, I've watched the the first episode last night. Uh, I made some headway into the second episode early this morning. Um, it is both an attempt to situate O.J. Simpson in American culture, um, provide context about his rise, and also, you know, ultimately to get to the O.J. Simpson trial and try to explain what that trial meant um, and what its legacy is. And I haven't gotten that far to be able to answer those questions, but I will say the documentary in its first part makes the very convincing argument that part of OJ's success was due to the fact that he served, he acted as kind of a counter-revolutionary athlete at a time when black athletes were increasingly political. Uh, Muhammad Ali just passed away. He's the emblematic case. But in 1968, um, many black athletes were boycotting uh, the Olympic Games, were actively speaking out against American racism in the Vietnam War. And OJ... Um, at the time, probably the most famous collegiate athlete in the country was silent, um, notably silent, uh, and was participating kind of, you know, mainstream society in a way that other black athletes weren't. And so the, the, this first hour and a half makes the, the case, um, and the way I would probably phrase it, is uh, OJ allowed white Americans to believe in a fantasy of post-racialism um, that you really could just get ahead by virtue of, of your talent. And that was sort of undergirding his popularity. Um, you can watch it on ESPN. I think they're just airing it nonstop. Or if, like me, you don't have cable, you can buy it on iTunes. An Ezra Edelman production. I know. Isn't that funny? An Im- Our former... An important Washington, D.C. Uh, native. Yeah. Um, my chatter is totally self-absorbed, which may just may be true of all chatters, but this one is less thinly veiled uh, than others, which is that the good people at Field Notes... Um, uh, have created um, a, a great new product, um, which is a reporter's notebook, which, um, well, they were they were thinking about doing it anyway, but I wrote them a couple of months ago and said, I use your notebooks and I use your steno, uh, notebooks and I really would love it if you would create a reporter's notebook. So uh, I never thought I'd hear back from them, but they wrote back and said, okay, but you uh, should help us design it. So I got to help them um, or at least send them thoughts and they pleasantly accepted them um, and... Uh, now this thing exists in the world. It came out this week, and uh, it's the Field Notes Byline Edition, which is just like all their normal beautiful quality and graphic design. But there's also, if you buy now, you get an adaptation of one of my chapters uh, from the Whistle Stop book, which is about James Callender uh, and his death in 1803, uh, one of the first scandal-mongering um, journalists. Um, so it's something that's not, it's an adaptation written as if it were written the day he died, not actually what's in the book. But um, so g- get it while supplies last. That's really awesome. I'm also a big fan of Field Notes Notebooks. So I'm I'm actually at the website right now and I'm about to buy buy this set. That's really great. How are there limited supplies? Aren't they just going to keep um, making them? There are definitely limited supplies now, but that doesn't mean that they won't, you know, make more. But for right now, there's limited supplies. If 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 this field notes notebook turns out to give everyone paper cuts, will you feel bad? Will people be able to sue you for their paper cuts? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't Good. think they will. I don't think. I don't think that's. I don't know. We don't, Emily's not here to give us her legal opinion, but. Um, uh, but one of the reasons I've always loved field notes is just the like detail and passion and enthusiasm for a physical thing that also means I mean you know a notebook is like the central thing of of what we do so it just appealed to all, has always appealed to all of my uh, idiosyncrasies. Good, my chatter, double chatter, quick double chatter. First, my wife Hannah Rosen is the co-host of a podcast slash radio show called Invisibilia on from NPR and they do seasons like sort of a Netflix show and their new season of I think seven episodes drops it starts this uh, week 
So you should check it out. It's uh, Invisibilia is kind of in the radio lab, this American life school of uh, really deep, complicated, rich stories about human behavior. It's it's about invisible forces that affect our life. The first story is, in fact, Hannah's story about an oil rig, a very interesting oil rig where curious things happened. Um, the, and the other, my other chatter, so so you can look for that on your in iTunes and get the podcast. Go subscribe to that podcast in iTunes. The other, my other chatter is just I saw a wonderful act of vandalism in New York this week and Subway. So there was a, a poster left over or maybe I don't know if it's leftover is new for The Man in the High Castle, which is the Amazon series based on the Philip K. Dick novel about a Nazi takeover of America. And it shows sort of Nazi-like people. And the text on, on it is, uh, evil triumphs only when good men do nothing, uh, is the slogan. And so it's supposed to be sort of like, oh, the Nazis have triumphed because good men have done nothing. Brilliant, brilliant act of um, vandalism, knocked out three letters, to make it evil Trump only when good men do nothing. It's really, <laughs> it was a real bravura performance with just a tiny bit of Sharpie. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer today is Dan Bloom. Usually it's Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply, the network we're part of. You can check out the entire roster of Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. Email us at GabFest at Slate.com and subscribe to us in iTunes, leaving a comment and rating while you're there. And don't forget to go to Slate.com slash live to get more information about our July 13th live show in D.C. at the Warner Theater and the August 4th live Slate Culture Fest at the Mount in Lenox, Massachusetts. For Jamel Bowie sitting in for Emily and John Dickerson sitting in for John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.